Chapter 11, Developing Your People, Core Values. Hey there, I'm Eric Olson. And I'm Kevin Daisy. Join us on our journey to building a $100 million company. Hey, what's happening? This is Eric J. Olson. In January of 2021, I published a book named Million Dollar Journey. I had the audio for that. It's on audible.com, but I'm going to share it with you right here on this podcast. So this is a chapter from the book. Some of these episodes are going to be long. Some will be short, but I'm going to read the whole thing to you. One chapter at a time. Here you go. After hearing it, let me know what you think on Instagram. I hang out there at eric.j.olson. That's E-R-I-K dot J dot Olson. And without further ado, here's a chapter from Million Dollar Journey. After my first firing experience, I knew that I needed to write down expectations of how I wanted our staff to act and interact with each other. Our company lacked core values. Core values are a communal belief system for your company. They are a handful of expectations, typically determined by the founder or leader of the company, and put into place to guide the company's actions and decisions. Once defined, you need to do more than just have them printed and hanging on the wall. You need to live by each and every core value. As the leader of your company, it's of utmost importance that you lead by example and find ways to keep core values in front of the entire team. Core values are a reflection of you, and if you don't live up to one of them, you will be viewed as a hypocrite and your core values will be a joke. Only people who you believe exhibit your core values should make it through the interview process, receive an offer letter, and remain with the company. Conversely, you should fire people who don't live by your core values. Core values are uncompromising. You cannot allow someone to work at your company who doesn't exhibit core values on an ongoing basis. I'm not saying to fire someone the first time they don't exhibit a core value, but they should be warned and fired if they continue to not live by these values. It is your responsibility to weave these values into everything you do every moment of every day. Find opportunities to reinforce your core values. The kudos systems we use at Array Digital does just that on a daily basis. An employee can give another employee kudos points for exhibiting one or more core values. Shortly after that first firing, I took a stab at drafting our first few core values. Once published, I spoke about them often. As I continued to refer to the first draft of core values, I realized that, in some cases, what I wrote was slightly different than what I intended. Each time I noticed a discrepancy, I'd update the core values to get them a little bit closer to what I believed. Like most areas of business, core values should be an iterative process. It's okay to improve them over time. Be sure to communicate each time you make a change and explain your rationale for the change so your employees are in sync with the updated set of core values. 
But I worry that by setting my expectations and hiring and firing by core values, I would have a hard time finding and keeping employees. So was it worth it? Yes. This is where the medal of a leader comes into play. You need to be strong, state what you believe, write it down, and communicate your core beliefs. You, and only you, can set the core values for your company. You can and should receive feedback from others in the company, but the core values must not be compromised. The first version of our core values included honesty, learning, technical excellence, collaboration, transparency, timeliness, informal professionalism, and early adoption. I included a short narrative about each. Each of those original core values has been morphed, clarified, combined, or removed as we've grown as a company and examined each and every core value. I'm not suggesting that you haphazardly change your core values, not in the least. Changing your core values is a big deal, and you should only do it after careful examination. As the company grew, we learned more about who we were and who we wanted to become. When we changed our business model to focus on digital marketing, we updated our core values. Here are the core values we currently live by. First, transparency. Being honest and operating in a way that is easy for others to see what actions are performed are the bedrock to building trust with team members and clients. We will always be transparent with each other and our clients. The second core value, quality. We are some of the best at what we do. We provide the highest quality offering practicable. We will always produce to a level that the majority of us believe is superior. Mediocre performance is unacceptable. Every team member is expected to highlight and address low-quality work. Third, urgency. Being on time is not enough. We must have a sense of urgency and complete our work as quickly as possible. We are growing fast, and there's no opportunity for downtime. The faster we are, the more we will accomplish in the same amount of time. Fourth, winning. We are a winning organization. We will win on a daily basis through our actions and attitudes. We will win attention, mindshare, and business in the marketplace. We position our clients to win through our high-quality, attention-getting digital marketing. We are in this to win it. And last, passion. We are passionate about the work we do and how we do it. That passion can clearly be seen in the way we continuously learn more about our craft and how we constantly strive to improve ourselves as individuals and an organization and how we carry ourselves professionally in all situations and in how we are ready and willing to help a team member in need of assistance. Some of the changes from the original core values are subtle but important. As an example, the original expectation of timeliness 
was changed to urgency. We chronically completed our projects late when I first wrote our core values. I hated that we often didn't adhere to timelines and knew it was a major problem. First and foremost, I wanted to stop being late. That's where timeliness came into play. It was intended to correct the expectation that it was okay for us to be late and to communicate that being on time was now expected. Going from late to on time was a huge improvement. But once we regularly delivered on time, I realized that we were undershooting. We really needed to deliver as fast as we could. We had to raise the bar, and with that, we had to update the core value. Sooner rather than later, write down what you believe to be your core values. Like I did, it's okay if you change them as time goes on, but you must believe in them. Unlike what I did, I recommend that you create your core values before you hire your first employee, and certainly before you fire someone. Employee benefits. Perks. Everybody loves perks, but not everybody gets them. Also known as employee benefits, they are a form of compensation in addition to an employee's pay. Examples of perks are paid time off, also known as vacation, sick leave, health insurance, life insurance, short-term disability insurance, long-term disability insurance, dental insurance, vision, retirement plans optionally with a company contribution, expense account, phone allowance, car allowance, tuition reimbursement, gym membership, childcare, free food or lunch. That's just a short list. When it comes to benefits, it's entirely up to you to be as extravagant as you want. The more difficult it is for an industry to find and retain employees, and if their profit margins allow, the more extravagant a company's benefits usually will be. If you hire someone as a freelancer, contractor, or vendor, then the only compensation you are required to provide them is their pay. They are responsible for paying their own taxes and providing whatever benefits they want. You may provide them some benefits, but that's entirely up to you. An example may be paying for a contractor's parking fee if your office is in the city. But it would be rare for a company to pay for a contractor's time off or for their health insurance. Those types of more expensive perks are reserved for employees and typically full-time employees at that. With my first employee, I knew I had to provide some benefits, but benefits can be expensive. As a young company and hiring my first employee, I needed to keep my cost downs as much as possible. What I needed was a minimal viable benefits package, just the absolute basics. My first employee did not need health insurance or any other form of insurance. Her husband was in the military and they provided health insurance to both of them. It was a financial and logistical relief for me to not have to worry about health insurance. I didn't know how much health insurance would cost, but I knew it wouldn't be cheap. I also didn't know how to go about getting it 
but I knew it would require research and consume a lot of my time to figure it out. Since she didn't need it, I could simply defer that research project for the time being. She didn't need a computer from me either. I'd eventually buy her a company laptop, but when she was hired on, she opted to use her own. That was fine by me. High-end laptops are expensive, and I preferred to not have to buy one if I didn't have to. Although she provided the laptop, I bought an external monitor and a few small accessories for her to use. Those didn't cost much. The big perk that I offered her was paid time off. I followed my last employer's paid time off model and offered comprehensive leave. With comprehensive leave, an employee can take time off and get paid for it for any reason whatsoever. They can use their paid time off for a vacation, when they get sick, or for a holiday. It's a nice system because as the employer, I don't care why they're taken off, but I do need a practical way of knowing how much time they'll take off and when they'll be gone. So she got comprehensive leave instead of a set number of days off for vacation, another number of days for sick, and another number of days for predefined holidays. Since comprehensive leave covers all the different types of leave, I offered four weeks of it. So four weeks times five days per week equals 20 days of paid leave per year. That was 20 days that I was going to pay her, but she wasn't going to work. The other formal perk I provided was to pay for her parking. My first office was in a downtown area, and it cost $85 a month for a parking pass to the nearby garage. Not a ton of money, but it was one of those expenses that I assumed would aggravate an employee over time. So I picked up that cost and paid it directly. That was my entire benefits package at first. Comprehensive leave, free parking, and computer accessories. From a financial and logistical perspective, it was quite manageable. I also offered intangible perks such as learning opportunities on and off the clock and the annual conference we attended on my dime. Although my benefits package was simple, I also realized it wouldn't always be that way. As we grew, I knew I wouldn't continue to luck out and find candidates who didn't need health insurance. I knew health insurance would be the next big perk I had to offer since so many in the workforce need it. To start attracting the right kind of a talent, I had to offer health insurance. That was the second big perk I added after comprehensive leave. With my second employee, I offered a health insurance benefit. I'd yet to line up a plan and told him I was going to stand up a group health insurance plan soon. When he accepted the offer, I had to scramble to line up a plan. Talk about just-in-time benefits. A friend of mine referred me to a health insurance broker. It was a relief to meet with the broker because there are countless insurance companies, all with their own plans and different costs and benefits. We sat down, he asked me a few questions, and then he laid out several options with recommendations. Here's an oversimplification of how health insurance plans work. You can choose from different plans with varying benefits and costs. Plans with more benefits will cost you a higher monthly premium than plans with less benefits. To pick the right plan for you, you need to consider the cost of your monthly premium and how much coverage you think you'll need. 
I was going to enroll myself into the plan too, so it needed to be a plan good enough for my family. I also needed a plan that would attract new employees, so I opted for a plan closer to the Cadillac plan, a plan that offered more benefits but also had a higher premium than the other plans. After lining everything up with the health insurance broker, it was time for individuals to sign up. The company would pay for 50% of not only the employee's premium, but also 50% of the premium for their spouse and children. In the long run, splitting the cost of the plan with employees turned out to be a good decision. If I were to offer health insurance at no cost, then employees likely wouldn't appreciate the value we provided. If it costs them nothing, then why not insist on the best health insurance plan that money can buy? By splitting the cost with the employees, I found that they and I became partners over time in picking the right plan, one that balanced costs with benefits. After all, they were just as much affected by the plan and the cost of the plan as I was. In time, picking plans became a group exercise where we evaluated the plan benefits and costs. Everyone sees the costs, calculates how much each plan will cost them after the company pays half, and understands the benefits of each plan. Although I make the final decision on which plan we go with every year, I seek their feedback and insights. My first employee, whose husband was in the military, opted out of the new company health insurance plan as expected. But it turned out that my second employee didn't need it either. It was cheaper for him to get insurance on his wife's company's plan. Only me and my family signed up for the plan. That was a win for me. I was now an employer who offered health insurance, which made recruiting top talent easier. But at the same time, none of my employees enrolled in the plan, so I saved a bunch of money. Dental and vision insurance were relatively inexpensive compared to health insurance, so we added those insurance plans shortly thereafter. Like with health insurance, we paid 50% of the premium. With those three, health, dental, and vision, and with paid time off, I had most of the major perks covered. Later, at the request of an employee, we added long-term disability insurance, short-term disability insurance, and life insurance. Like dental and vision insurance, these three new policies combined were inexpensive. But unlike the other policies, I initially decided to pay 100% of the premium. Not surprisingly, everyone signed up. About a year later, while scrutinizing our financials during one of our many cash crunches, the payments for short and long-term disability and life insurance caught my eye. It was only a few hundred dollars a month, but I wondered if any of my employees valued those plans. No one ever mentioned how much they appreciated them, and the benefits had never been used by anyone in the company. The only way I was going to find out if they valued the benefit was to ask. But asking wasn't enough. When something is given to you for free, you may not value it even though you've accepted it. Why would you turn it away if it's free? So I had to see if employees would be willing to pay for part of this benefit the same way they paid for part of health, 
dental, and vision. After explaining that I was considering dropping the perk, but wanting to see if employees wanted to keep it, I asked if they'd prefer we drop it or split the cost with them like we did for health, dental, and vision. To my surprise, most wanted the perk and were willing to pay for it. The tribe had spoken. With the next payroll, we split the difference with employees. There were a few grumblings from them about now having to pay 50% of the cost for something they used to get for free, but no one dropped the benefit. Had I to do it all over again, I would have initially offered to pay for 50% of that perk instead of paying for all of it. Slowly, we added more perks. When I noticed that several employees were going to the gym after work, I got with my gym and opened a corporate account. Similar to insurance, we'd have the employees pay part of this perk. We'd pay the joining fee and the monthly fee, but we'd withhold a measly $5 per paycheck. It obviously wasn't a lot, but I wanted them to have a reminder that they were paying for a perk so they would not waste it. Yet, I knew that wouldn't be enough to get people to the gym. I wanted them to be healthy and work out, but I also didn't want to keep paying for a membership that they weren't going to use, even if they did pay for a small portion of it. So I added a clause requesting that they go at least once a week. Another caveat was that if they didn't go for an entire month, then we'd stop paying for the membership. They can keep the membership if they want, but if they weren't using it, then we would stop paying for it. When I first rolled out the gym perk, practically everyone took advantage of it. That first week, I saw everyone at the gym working out, doing cardio, and a few of the guys playing racquetball. But starting the second week, it was back to normal. They quickly stopped using the perk. I didn't cut them off after a month, even though the employee policies said they should be cut off. But once someone didn't show for two months, I cut them off. Over time, only a small portion of employees would use the gym membership. To keep administration of the plan simple, it only applied to the line of gyms I attended so I could easily find out how often my folks worked out. One problem was that only people who worked out at the main office could use the perk. That means remote workers couldn't take advantage of that perk. I thought about opening that perk up to any gym anywhere, but then I'd open myself up to variable and potentially costly monthly gym fees. And I'd have no way of knowing if the perk was being used. Perhaps I should have treated the gym membership perk just like any other with the company paying half. But it doesn't matter now because we've since canceled this perk due to low participation. In the end, no one cared much about it. Even with health insurance, paid time off, and a stable of other minor perks in place, one perk eluded me for many years. That was a retirement plan. Every job I'd had since graduating college had come with a retirement plan. It was another big perk that I felt we needed to offer. Without it, we were an employer with an inferior set of benefits to offer employees and potential employees. We felt that we had to offer a retirement plan to finally become a legitimate employer. Connecting with a local financial advisor, we asked about setting up a 401k plan. 
We were advised that a 401k plan would be quite expensive for a small company, and 401ks were best suited for companies with at least 50 employees. What was best for us was a simple IRA. Both 401ks and simple IRAs allow employees to put away a portion of their pre-tax dollars into a retirement account, and the employer can match a certain percentage. Simple IRAs allow us to match 100% of the employee's first 3% of their salary, which is what we did. It was quite painless for us to open up the retirement plan. The financial advisor did the heavy lifting and met with each employee to explain all their options and work with them to invest their savings into various mutual funds. At the company level, though, it did add the extra expense of matching our employees' contributions. Everyone participated, so our payroll costs effectively increased 3%. With the retirement plan in place, we had finally put all the pieces into place to take care of our employees. Like with other aspects of entrepreneurship, when it comes to offering benefits, I felt it was better to start even if in an imperfect way, than to wait to create a mega comprehensive plan. We got the basics into place and made them better over time. That turned out to be a much better solution than not hiring anyone until I had a full and expensive arsenal of benefits to offer the first person. Incremental improvement, as with most things in business, worked out well for offering employee benefits. When you're preparing to hire your first employee, I recommend you iterate your employee benefits as well. Before you start interviewing people, decide on which benefits you want to provide. Prospective employees will likely ask about benefits during the interview process, and it's best to have a clear understanding of what you want to offer. It's also a good idea to have at least a rough understanding of how much each benefit will cost you. But if you're not sure which possible benefits they value, then work with your first employees to come up with a benefits package that works for you and for them. Like I did, you can adjust by adding or removing benefits over time. Employee review processes. Going through an early growth phase, we quickly grew from a one-man shop to having three or four full-time employees and a part-time employee. Things were humming along in the human resources department just fine for quite some time. That is, until one of my guys, who had been with me for a little over a year, asked me if I would give him a review. He said he'd like to give feedback on how he'd performed the previous year and wanted to know what he could do to add more value to the company. I was surprised that an employee actually wanted a review. As a former employee myself, I dreaded the process of the annual review. It was a bit of a shock to me that others, people who now work for me, sought out that kind of feedback. I found out later that in addition to the review, he also wanted a raise. (laughs) And here I was thinking he just wanted to know how he could do better. Regardless of his motivation for requesting it, I had enough employees where I could no longer just hope no one asked for a raise. But before handing out raises, a review was in order. It was time for me to create a review and raise process. 
I dreaded creating a process for reviews and races. I feared putting a process like that into place because I was and still am firmly anti-bureaucratic. Ever since I graduated from college and started my career, I'd been subjected to the same process for employee reviews. Once a year, the whole company would be completely distracted with reviews for about a month. The month-long distraction would kick off with our human resources folks briefing everyone on the review process. Reviews consisted of several questions that both the employee and the supervisor would have to answer or comment on. You know, how well the employee performed, what their strengths and weaknesses were, something they did well last year, and areas of improvement. As the employee being reviewed, I would fill out my answers to those questions, my manager would provide responses to my answers, and then would compare my responses to my supervisor's responses. What I quickly realized was that the employee always writes up all the good things they've done for the last year while glossing over the not-so-good things. The supervisor would do basically the opposite. They'd focus on the negatives more than the positives, acknowledge the good performance, but without giving too much credit. It was a dance the employee and supervisor did every year where the employee wanted to be seen as a top contributor to the company, and the supervisor basically knocked their direct report down to earth while still propping them up just enough to make it look like they were a good supervisor. On my first review as an employee out of college and naive to the game, I listed a few of my weaknesses in my review. It was an honest assessment of where I was just one year out of college. My supervisor, who was, frankly, more of a friend than a supervisor, cautioned me to not include negative comments about myself in reviews. He explained how the review process is a game corporations play, and that as the employee, my objective was to only include accomplishments and strengths in the review. He told me to never list a weakness or mention something I had screwed up. Basically, as the employee, I needed to create the narrative that I walked on water. Having been schooled by my corporate mentor, I played the game from then on. Later, as a supervisor, I continued to play the game, pointing out the weaknesses and the mess-ups my folks had done during the past year. But every time I participated in this game, I felt dirty. Something just didn't seem right about the whole employee review process. Worse, at my last job, supervisors had to grade each employee by giving them a 1 through 5 rating on different questions. The HR briefing to supervisors made it abundantly clear that they were expecting very few 1s and very few 5s to be issued. Doing so would require substantial evidence to support your rating. If you gave someone a shoulder rating of a 2 or a 4, then you had to leave a brief comment to explain why they deserve that rating. But if you gave a 3, no comment was necessary. A 3 on a 1 to 5 scale just flew right on by. No comment or documentation necessary. Guess what the average rating was across the company? It was slightly higher than a 3. Now, why would that be? If you make it hard to provide honest feedback and doing so will require a lot of extra work, 
People will simply take the path of least resistance. Supervisors are no different. Since the average rating was a little over a three, it showed that they were willing to do just a tad bit of extra work by doling out a four every once in a while. To summarize my prior experience with reviews, they weren't great. They were games played by employees and supervisors, and I hated playing the game. Once I had my own company, I was determined to stop playing those kinds of stupid games. What I wanted out of a review process was the ability to provide real feedback and have an honest discussion. I also didn't want to wait until just one day of the year. The review process needed a more frequent feedback loop between supervisors and employees. Knowing generally what I wanted, but unsure of exactly how it should be structured, I started researching different ways that modern companies handle the review and raise processes. A model that resonated with me was that of Silicon Valley tech startups. Although they could afford to lavish their employees with ridiculous perks and I could not, I plucked some of the good parts out of what I discovered and cobbled together my own review process. One-on-one meetings. First, I wanted to ensure that discussions were held regularly between employee and supervisor. That required dedicated, on-the-calendar time between the two parties. At that point, I was the only supervisor in the company, so I'd schedule a lunch meeting between me and every employee once every two months. I named these one-on-one meetings 1-1, one-on-ones for short. The company would pay for lunch. We'd talk about how things were going, and I'd provide feedback on any concerns I had. It was a time for us to air any grievances from either side and conclude with what the next two months would entail before we got together again. Later, as some of my employees had their own direct reports, they'd meet over lunch. This worked okay at first, but it didn't seem to have the same impact for other supervisors as it did for me. When I'd asked about how the lunch went, about half the time it turned out they just chatted over a free lunch and never got around to talking about how the employee was performing. I was surprised when I realized that many times most supervisors and direct reports would even skip their one-on-ones. Wanting to ensure that employees got supervisor FaceTime like I wanted them to, we started to track each one-on-one to ensure that it was held. Clearly, they weren't seeing value in the process I had set up. That was a disappointment, but I didn't know how to improve the process. I was already paying them to have a free lunch on me. What more was needed to get them to talk? Then I learned the concept of holding weekly one-on-ones during a learning session hosted by the entrepreneur's organization. The trainer extolled the virtues of holding a weekly meeting or phone call between each supervisor and direct report. But he also told us to keep them short, preferably no more than 15 minutes each. Although to me it seemed like overkill and potentially a giant waste of time, To me, with each direct report weekly, I decided to give it a shot. It turned out to be great advice. We continue holding weekly one-on-ones between each supervisor and employee. I currently hold five one-on-ones with each of my direct reports every Wednesday morning. I allocate half an hour to each in case we go over, 
although it's perfectly fine if we wrap up in 10 minutes or if we use the entire 30 minutes. Those five meetings happen one after the other, so my entire morning is booked. Seems like a lot, but it's time well spent. I consider those to be the most important set of meetings I have all week. Kudos. Our kudos system was detailed earlier in Million Dollar Journey. One reason I instituted it was so I could find out about the good things people were doing in the company. Oftentimes, even supervisors aren't aware of all of their direct reports contributions. Many good things employees do are never noticed at a higher level, and that's a shame. If Steve takes 20 minutes to help Samantha out with a problem she's struggling with, that collaboration is a good thing, but Steve's boss will likely never hear about it. With kudos in place and an incentive program tied to it for giving and receiving kudos, that information sees the light of day. When Samantha thanks Steve by giving him kudos, Steve's supervisor will see that. That kind of feedback, which was made intentionally public to the whole company, is great input into the one-on-one meetings between supervisors and direct reports. Those kudos can and should be used to directly influence more formal reviews as well. Annual reviews. Although I hated the annual review process I'd been subjected to in the past, I knew I needed an annual review process for the company. But the big difference between what my past employers did and the process I would create would be that there would be no surprises on either side at the annual review. After all, supervisor and direct reports were having dedicated time once a week to discuss these kinds of things. Anything of concern, anything that could end up in the annual review would certainly have already been discussed once or more during these one-on-one meetings. If they hadn't, or if someone came out of an annual meeting surprised, then the supervisor wasn't doing a good job with their one-on-one meetings or with supervising. What I definitely didn't want was the same old process where the employees said how amazing they've been, but conveniently forgot about all of their oopsies, and the supervisor reminded them of all the screw-ups they'd had along the way. Since the annual review would be mostly a recap of previous conversations, the supervisors should simply document those conversations and present it to their direct report. Each time we've done that, the response has basically been, yeah, I agree with that. Although you can lie to yourself when you set your goals, you're unlikely to highlight the lie to the world by admitting that you failed to reach your goals. Rolling out the stack of processes for reviews, one-on-ones, kudos, and annual reviews went practically flawlessly. Besides changing the one-on-ones from a free lunch every month to weekly 15-minute meetings, everything else has remained as originally laid out. Raises. Raises are a funny thing. Employees want the biggest raise possible, but companies generally want them to be as low as possible. They're yet another point of contention in the human resources realm. But before talking about a raise, you have to conduct a review to see how the employee is doing. 
The annual review is used as input into a discussion between me and each supervisor about how much of a raise we should give an employee. In the beginning, we didn't have a great way to deal with raises. I had yet to create the process, which meant that I tried all sorts of options with varying degrees of success. Frankly, it's still a work in process. But originally, we would negotiate each raise with each person. That resulted in some people getting substantially more than others due to their negotiating skill, which arguably may have resulted in their raise being disproportionate to their actual contribution. The point of a raise is to provide an annual salary adjustment. It is not meant per se to compensate someone for doing a bigger, more valuable job than they are supposed to be doing. In those circumstances, you should be considering a promotion, not just a raise. I'll circle back to promotions in the next section. Simply doing your job as you said you would do does not entitle you to get a big, fat raise. After all, you said you'd do it for a certain amount, then you did. You don't get a big raise for doing what was expected of you. A raise, in my opinion, should be a moderate yet noticeable annual increase if the person is doing everything expected of them. Granted, some could be contributing much less or much more than others, and that should be reflected in the amount of each person's raise. But still, the raise should be a modest bump in pay. That's true for most companies, but I've adopted a stance that it's not okay to contribute much less than expected. In those circumstances, we shouldn't even be talking about a raise. We should be talking about a performance improvement plan or disciplinary action. If an employee is not doing well, they shouldn't get a raise. Thanks to our weekly one-on-ones and a formal disciplinary process, the fact that they are underperforming should come as no surprise to the employee. Since we have a baseline criteria that raises are only for those doing well, and everyone else will be going down the route of disciplinary action and a performance improvement plan, we've recently adopted a policy of largely standardizing our raise amounts. We've also split the raise into two components, a salary adjustment and a bonus. Let's say someone is doing everything you expect of them and you've established that their performance warrants a 6% raise. One option is to simply raise their salary by 6%. The downside for the company is that the raise next year will be on top of the raise from this year. In other words, raises compound over time. What we decided to do instead is break up the increase into a salary increase and a bonus. So instead of getting a 6% raise, they actually get a 4% salary increase and a 2% bonus. That bonus would be paid out immediately in the next paycheck issued, and the salary increase would kick in then too. So the employee gets a one-time cash bonus of 2% of their current salary and does not need to wait for the whole year to receive it little by little in each paycheck. That addresses the downside for the employee. On the employer's side, they've only increased their salary baseline by 4% instead of 6%, removing some of the compounding effect. 
Raises should be put in writing, ideally by updating or amending the employee agreement you have with each employee every time they get a raise. No matter what, somehow put it in writing. You should identify when the raise takes effect and the amount of the raise adjustment and bonus. That written record should then go in the employee's personnel file. Promotions. A job promotion should only be given when you've clearly defined the new responsibilities and duties that the person will take on. In the past, I've made the mistake of giving people, quote, promotions simply by giving them a bigger title in order to make Array Digital look bigger than we were at the time. You know the trick. When a company has, say, three people and everyone is a CEO, vice president, or chief something or other, even though they're all really junior level folks. It sure looks good at a company level when you tell someone you'll have your VP of product development contact them. But when your VP turns out to be more junior than the client they're calling, it doesn't look very good. It may help with initial perceptions, but it can make you look foolish later. Another problem with promoting by title without thinking it through is that titles mean something. Although you personally may no longer care about titles, you're also the entrepreneur in charge of your company. You've already declared yourself king. Titles don't mean much to you anymore, but they certainly mean something to the people who work for you. If you bump someone from designer to senior designer in order to make your proposals look more appealing, then guess what? At some point, whether they're capable or not, they'll start to believe they should be paid like a senior designer. If they can't perform at that level, then you've just set yourself up for a very awkward future conversation. I once hired a mid-level person, but at the last minute decided to bestow a director title upon them. I wanted their title to be impressive to the outside world. Although the title was impressive, the employee wasn't up to the expectation. I piled on more responsibilities than they could handle, and they ended up crashing and burning. Providing a lofty title set them up for failure, and that was my fault. I had done the same thing when we hired Jake as our digital marketing guy. His job was to provide digital marketing after we delivered a website to our clients. When we hired him, he was somewhere between advanced junior level and early mid-level in his career. But we knew that if he was going in front of clients talking about digital marketing, we'd have to give him a title that puffed him up a bit. Although he had a little management experience at the time, we settled on the title Digital Marketing Manager. We all acknowledged that was a bigger title than he deserved at the time, and we joked about it often. But over time, he grew into the title and later performed well at it. So much so that after a few years, I realized we needed to groom him into a bigger position. One that we lacked and badly needed, a creative director. Upon bringing this up to him at one of our one-on-one -on -one meetings, Jake latched on to the idea. He said he was ready, but I countered that he wasn't. He needed to learn a lot more about the industry and the history of marketing and advertising 
and he needed to grow into the position. I didn't want to give him a title before he was ready because it could not only set him up for failure, it could also hurt his reputation and career. I didn't want him to become a laughingstock of the marketing community if they realized it was a lofty title that he didn't deserve. So I made him wait. Over the course of more than a year, we'd talk about the potential promotion. I told him that I frankly didn't know exactly what I expected out of a creative director and asked him to research the job responsibilities. He did, and I did too, but he's the one who drafted the job requirements. But still, he wasn't quite ready. More time passed, and I watched as he began to take more ownership of the creative process and output. He was slowly starting to operate in the capacity of a creative director, a position we still did not have in our company. Along the way, we talked about it every two or three weeks during our weekly one-on-ones and discussed how he had recently demonstrated the ability to be a creative director and where he still came up a bit short. Time went on, but I still didn't think he was ready. After about a year and a half of discussion and coming up on his annual review, I recognized the effort he'd put in. He'd been reading, studying, and getting better about being assertive with the team. He'd gotten heavily involved with the local professional organization for marketers, and he was beginning to control the creative process, output, and team. He was ready. At his review, we discussed all the things we had covered in the weekly one-on-ones since his last review. When it came time to talk about his performance and a possible promotion, no one was surprised. It was clear he was ready. He once again pitched the promotion, and this time I agreed. I announced to the team not only his promotion, but discussed the one-and-a-half-year process we went through to get him ready. I explained how he was now ready and how his responsibilities were shifting accordingly. That was one of the better promotions I've given. He was not only eager, but willing to put in the work to get himself ready. It was a well-deserved promotion, and even Jake appreciates that it was not a promotion in title only. He had to earn it. I hope future promotions go as smoothly as that one did. The big lesson I've learned about promotions is to not hand them out willy-nilly. If you do, they will be meaningless. Be sure to understand the new responsibilities that come along with the promotion. If you're not 100% sure you understand, then hold back on making the promotion. Of course, also be 100% sure your employee understands the new expectations. If you're not clear and they're not clear, it could mean big trouble ahead for you both and for your company. Also, be sure the position they're being promoted into is one that the company needs. Never create a new position just to placate an employee's ambitions. Titles matter, and you control those titles. Take those responsibilities seriously. Chapter takeaways. Number one, 
Core values are beliefs that you, as the founder, should put into writing and build into every aspect of working at your company. It's okay to add, edit, or even remove core values over time as you learn more about how you want your company to evolve. Number two, most employees expect not only pay, but also benefits. Consider the cost of each benefit before you offer it to employees. Like most areas in business, it's perfectly acceptable to iterate the benefits you offer and change them over time as your company grows. Number three, provide continual feedback to employees on their performance. Consider holding short weekly one-on-one meetings between supervisors and their direct reports. Number four, create a method for employees to publicly recognize each other's contributions. This will help create a sense of team and also help supervisors discover good things their employees are doing. Number five, when creating your annual review process, create one that encourages open and honest feedback. No one should be surprised in an annual review. Number six, pay raises should be moderate adjustments in pay. Number seven, Larger raises should come with more responsibilities and be considered a promotion, but only if you need that position filled. Are you a business owner looking to reach more customers and grow? Array Digital is a world-class digital marketing agency that partners with companies just like yours. We've worked with top brands throughout the country and love helping businesses generate more revenue, employ more people, and serve more customers. Reach out to find out more about our award-winning website design, SEO, advertising, and social media. You can find us online at thisisarray.com or call us at 757-333-3021.